So I think you can take an, an analogy of if you're if you're in a dark forest, there might be a bear in that forest is going to eat you. You're going to be scared of every little shadow that you see because that could be a danger. But if you're instead in a forest in the middle of the day, everything is clear. You can see everything. There is still a bear somewhere and you might see it far away. You're not going to be scared for any shadows or anything because you know that's over there. You can see it. And I think that's how it works with, with honesty in a relationship that you will always know there is a danger because in every relationship there's going to be a danger somewhere. There is that bear wandering around. But if I'm telling her, okay, this is my intention, this is the danger, this is the bear, I'm actually not happy. But at least when I say something else, she knows that there's not going to be a hidden agenda there because I've already said the painful things. I've already shown her where the bear is. So she's not going to look for the bear everywhere else. That's Eric Bergman, and I'm Brian Falchuk. The Do A Day Podcast. Will you hear from the most inspiring people who have been through hard times, overcome them, and have turned around to help others with what they've learned? I'm your host, Brian Falchuk. I know because I've lived it myself. I've written about it in my book, Do A Day, and that's why I'm bringing you this show. Remember, today's a new day. Go out and do it. Hey, day doers, welcome to another episode of the Do A Day podcast, where I bring you the most amazing people who have really interesting stories that bring inspiration to you that you can bring into your life. Today, my guest is Eric Bergman. Eric is a really interesting person, right? Um, he, well, he's interesting for a number of reasons, and we get into two very big stories in his life. But one of the key things that drew me to him is this really strong paradox with what he's exceptionally good at and what he's trying to achieve. And they, on the surface, are not in harmony. So he has, uh, he's been a successful entrepreneur who has built really successful online gambling business. And he went public with it and sold it and made a ton of money and realized after like a week that he was not happy. And in his pursuit of happiness, he got in, involved and more and more involved in charitable work and decided that just giving money is not really good enough. He wants to go further than that and actually create something, give of himself, create something sustaining that isn't just about writing a check, but actually can support causes in a much greater way. Um, and, and this is where it gets so interesting. He created something called great.com. That is a commercial enterprise. It's a for-profit business, but all of the profits go to support charities. And their main focus at the moment is uh, climate change with the idea that if the climate falls apart, if the planet's not here, then none of the other charitable causes matter because we have nowhere for them to exist. So they're trying to start at the, you know, the sort of genesis problem. Um, but the way that they're generating those profits to fund that charitable work is through an online gambling business, which he admits will ruin some lives. And this is a really strong dilemma. So we get into that. We get into Eric's why, why he's made that decision to do something that on the surface is not good for the purpose of doing good. Um, and then we also get into this other side of his life and his story and his growth around his relationship with his fiance and uh, why they broke up before and the struggles they've had in coming back together, but why they've been able to do that and do it in a way that is stronger, more enduring, 
harmonious, uh, really inspiring. It's a cool story. The struggle, the paradox, the, uh, the hypocrisy, however you want to phrase it, is a really interesting dilemma to get into. And Eric doesn't shy away from it, and I applaud him for that. So let's get into this episode with Great.com founder, Eric Bergman. Eric Bergman, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you very much for having me, Brian. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I have to give credit to, we were just talking about this, and I'm still struggling with how to refer to them together, but the ridiculously human humans, Craig and Gareth, for uh, having me on their show, and, and you heard a little bit and made the connection, and here we are. So I'm, uh, I'm here. We are thankful to them. They've made a, a number of great connections and uh, thankful to have you on the show. It was great. We, we got to catch up the other day, hear a little bit about your story. And um, yeah, it's a cool one. It's very different from a lot of the folks that have had on. So I'm excited to bring this out. I'm um, excited to be here. I'm excited to share. Yeah. And you, you were saying you've shared your story a number of times, but not in the U.S. or not in English yet. What's what's the I forget what what it was quite. Yeah, so I've shared it a few times in English, but mainly in Swedish. So I've done, well, I'm from Sweden, and I've done quite a few of the podcasts in Sweden. And that's kind of how I fell in love with the medium of podcasting. It's really, I just love having that long conversation in a way that you can actually get to know someone speaking in a way that's impossible with a blog post or whatever. It's, it's you can convey so much more using your voice than you can in text. Yeah. Um that's very true. And I think with, um, that's kind of the crux of the ridiculously human podcast is it's all about the storytelling and how that brings us connection with each other and what you feel in sharing your story and how it helps you almost connect with yourself. Just getting that longer form way to share a bit of, of your journey and your story. Um, I like that yeah. way of connecting to myself. Yeah. I can really resonate with that. I was just editing their episode on my show. That's why I feel like I, I know their story a little bit better at the moment because I was just doing that yesterday. <laughs> Otherwise, maybe I wouldn't have, have had something you would have connected with so much. Um, <laughs> all right, let's let's move from them to you. I'll just give us a, well, usually I have people give a quick overview of where they're at today, what they're working on today, but that's such a crucial tie-in to your whole story. So actually, I don't want to do that. I'd rather step back and and kind of go through the journey and we'll build to today because there isn't a nutshell version of your today story. So can you take us back through the like your whole backstory? And I mean, you know, that the the specific piece of it that we're talking about today, but let's get into that. OK, so I'll I'll jump very far back to start and I'll start with a little story, if that's OK. Yeah. Okay, so I'll I'll tell you about the biggest deal of my life. Okay. And so we've been in these negotiations for, for a couple of days. And uh, he was going to say yes yesterday, but he stopped. He went back and I had to come up with a completely new offer. And yeah, we were sitting there and discussing and he finally says, says yes. And I can feel that the excitement is bubbling up in me. This is actually going to happen. And I'm sending over the, the payment to him and, and he gave me the goods. And in my hand, I'm holding my first ever picture of Wayne Gretzky, the world's best hockey player. Yeah. And I'm eight years old and I'm so excited. And the reason why I'm starting by sharing this story is that I was a very lonely child growing up. I didn't have many friends. I never really managed to connect with especially other boys. But on the schoolyard, 
with hockey pictures, that was kind of the currency of friendships. So if I had hockey pictures, I I was accepted and I was included. And I think that my my entrepreneurial journey or my passion for for business somehow started there. Like if I could trade, I could buy or deal with these hockey pictures, I was suddenly accepted and and involved. And I can I can see how how a lot of entrepreneurial journeys or people doing business and I can see that it started there for for many others. And yeah, so that's that's the beginning of everything, I would say, and that took me to where where I am today. And on that journey, then I started building companies early on where for, in the beginning, hockey pictures were the currency of friendship and then business and money became the currency of friendship. Mm. And I just had a passion for building businesses. Eric, you maybe you were too young to know at the time, but I'm curious if you've ever reflected on why you felt that connection. Was it because you almost had like a, a construct or, or an excuse for the interaction versus having to come up with some organic reason to interact with people? Was it like, because you had a transaction, so it was clear while you were talking to each other, you had this focus point other than you or trying to figure out what they'd be interested in. Was it something around that or what, like, have you ever reflected on why that was, why that resonated for you? I think that just looking back, I haven't reflected on it, but I think I wasn't cool enough to be included. If you were hanging out with me, you weren't considered to be a cool kid. Mm. But if you were hanging out with me with the agenda of trading hockey pictures, it was a business transaction and then people weren't hanging out with me. Uh, so I was included and they didn't, I don't know, I wouldn't say have to suffer of spending time with one of the less cool kids, but effectively that's probably what it was. I think it was much easier for me to, it was more they had an excuse to interact with me than the other uh, way around, I think. Okay. Yeah. So it kind of, it removed the reason why there'd be a question about spending time with you. And yeah. So, yeah. I, I get it. It sort of reframed the whole interaction and the, the cool kid, uncool kid kind of uh, dynamic that plays out on the schoolyard. Yeah. And for example, when we were playing football, I got picked last. So that was a suffering, but that didn't happen in, in a quote unquote business transaction with hockey pictures. Mm. So I got really, really good at these hockey pictures and how to trade the best ones. I spent a lot of my weekly allowance on it. So I kind of became the king of hockey pictures or whatever latest fad was on the schoolyard because I gave all my passion and all my energy to it. Got it. So, yeah, that's how it's that's how it started. I think that says more about my my journey than any specific business story I can tell. Oh, that's really interesting. All right, so you get you get hooked on business and these doing the deals and transacting from an early age. So where does this yeah. where does this take you? So. Early on, I started companies. Uh, I had my first company already in school, and I failed a bunch of times with various ventures, but I learned from those failures. And I started a small web agency together with my childhood friend, Emil. We were born on the same day in the same hospital by parents who knew each other. Oh. So we've, we've been together for a while. Yeah. And that that company was supposed to be a consultancy agency and build websites for small local businesses in my hometown in Sweden. How old which, were you guys? 
20, okay. 19, give or take, so right after school. And to build websites for hairdressers and stuff is a really shitty business idea because they don't have any money to pay you, yeah. which we learned the hard way. Yeah. So instead, we started building websites for, for ourselves and do marketing for different online products on an, an affiliate and commission basis. So when we didn't have a client to build a website for, we built something for ourselves. And we started doing this for online bingo. So basically a website where compared bingo offers so you could see where you could play. Okay. And yes, it's, think, think hotels.com and these yeah, guys yeah. things for bingo. Yeah. I knew there's online so gambling. It, I didn't know that there was online bingo. Yeah, well, the the little bit longer story is that I was actually playing professional poker at the time. Yeah. I started playing poker professionally when I was 17. And the I was started working with marketing for poker and the sister's company of the one I was working with poker for was a bingo company. And bingo okay. was just booming in Sweden. Okay. So we started doing marketing for for bingo uh, under the website of well it was a Swedish website but it would translate to trybingo.com okay. um, and that actually the first year we made maybe a thousand euros doing that so it was just a teeny tiny hobby project yeah but we started to see okay this could actually work this could could turn into something everything else we've just been failing at so the second year I think we made maybe ten thousand euros that year and the third year we made 30,000 euros and felt like, okay, now we can actually put all our attention, all our focus into this and really give this a try. It actually works. Mm. And I'm, I'm 20, 22 at the time. Yeah. So I actually left Sweden, moved to Malta, this teeny tiny little island in the Mediterranean yeah. and gave this my, my everything. And Was there a reason it turned out to Malta? go really, really well. I was more a reason why not Malta. Uh, so we had to move from, well, I thought we had to move from Sweden uh, for legal reasons because there is a gambling monopoly in Sweden. Okay. And I thought that what we were doing were illegal. Uh, it turned out it wasn't. I just didn't know that back then. Yeah. So we had to leave. We thought we had to leave the country. And Malta was the only place I knew anyone living. So it's like, okay, sounds like a good place. And it was. Yeah, and Mediterranean great time. Island's not a bad place to go live. <laughs> no it's sunny beautiful people speak english everywhere it's close to the water yeah and it's really great place to leave, live i've been here nine years since so i got stuck but yeah this we took on investors after a couple of years in this and after a year of pain and suffering and extreme stress and almost bankruptcy uh, everything started going really really well so for, for a couple of years everything that we touched became gold everything that we did just skyrocketed and in 2016 uh, on my 28th birthday well on Emil's 28th birthday as well since we we're born on the same day we took the company to the stock exchange uh, on a valuation of about 200 million dollars wow. and yeah so that was a really big day and i made more money than I'm ever going to need in my life uh, doing that. So that's that's the short business, the business journey in a short perspective. Can I, can leading I, up until I want to ask you one question about the everything you touch turning to gold. Is that a function of things you guys were doing, doing better, doing differently? Or was it was it because the market was so hot and 
you know, the, the online gambling or online poker space or bingo was so on fire? Like, how much was you versus how much was you were in the right place at the right time or a mix? It was definitely a mix. Uh, so I would say the most crucial factor in in this was luck and timing. Mm. And because basically I failed at a bunch of things that I did before this. If we would have managed to get some decent clients into our little web agency, yeah. we would probably never have built uh, a hundred million dollar company yeah. because we would be stuck at a pretty shitty business idea. Yeah. And then it was also a lot of hard work, a lot of smart decisions and a lot of things that we did really well that turned it into the success it was. But we would never have gotten there if it wasn't for the the industry and how the tide was moving there and everything with it. So probably 75% luck and timing in industry and 25% skill. Yeah, and of course, you, you still have to take advantage. Of, like there's lots of opportunity around and a lot of people don't take the actions to go take advantage of that. But it's interesting yeah. that you, you noted, you know, if you guys didn't have some of the failures you had before, and that's, I think that's one of the things that interests me so much in people's stories, especially people who outwardly look very successful, is what their failure story looks like and how they relate to yeah. those failures. How many are like, um, you, you know, they, they have regrets and bitterness or like, I wish I didn't ever do that. And why couldn't I just do this thing sooner versus those who are like, well, yeah. look, if I didn't do that, I wouldn't have learned this lesson or I wouldn't have been trying so hard in this other thing or I would have just kept striving for mediocrity in the first, you know, like seeing the appreciation in, in those tougher moments. Um, so that, yeah, that's yeah, definitely. an interesting one. I can take a little sidetrack there and share a, a failure sure. story. That's so this is probably the most painful day of my life, at least up until then I'm, I'm 18 years old and I'm going to arrange a party. So I've rented this big nightclub. I've, uh fixed this cool dj and i invented invited everyone that i know and everyone i don't know and said that this is going to be the best and coolest party ever i really put myself out there to make this happen and this evening comes it's a friday and i'm standing at the door with my my guest list and the first friends are coming i take them off welcome them they go into this club they look around and they see that it's empty and they leave. And the same thing happened with the friends after that and the people after that and after that. And I don't manage to get anyone to stay. So I just stand there outside of the nightclub and I see my friends walking away and just imagine the feeling of having a party and your friends don't even want to be there. And after a couple of hours, I'm just in tears and I've realized that this is a complete fucking disaster. And I feel so much shame over this. And I just leave. And I hide away all of that weekend. And then I'm asking myself, like, what's what's the worst thing about failing? And to me, it was was the shame, like the worry. What will other people think? What will they say? How will they look at me after this? And I remember coming back to school on that Monday, and I just really didn't want to go there because I was sure that people will just laugh and point. And 
no one did anything. No one said anything. No one cared. And to me, that was just a shock because I couldn't see that happening. But then just looking back at this, it just makes actually a lot of sense that if one of the other kids in school would have had a party and no one would have shown up, I mean, would you have cared? Not really. No, I, I don't think that anyone would have cared. I wouldn't have cared. But we're so filled up with the impression that we care, we matter the most, so everyone would care about our failures. Yeah. But I think that everyone is so busy caring about their own failures mm. that they don't have the time to worry about someone else's failure. Yeah. So as you mentioned about learning from the mistakes, from this I learned that people don't actually care about my mistakes. So I can go out and fail proudly because what the worst part about it that I thought was the worst, it actually is not going to happen. At least it didn't for me. So to me, that was one of the most important experiences I've had in my life, seeing that, okay, I can fail without it actually need to be associated with all that guilt and shame. Yeah. Um, I think that's really interesting. I can hear people who are struggling with that notion when they're like, yeah, but this is my situation. So people do care or they ridicule me. And, and of course, people do get ridiculed. You, you suffered that as well. So do you think at the time connecting, you know, the, the social issues that you had, the, the struggles with fitting in to this moment, do you think you were justified in feeling that way? Or is it really just, I, I don't want to like make it seem like nothing, but as simple as that choice to realize they're not all watching you. They've got their own lives. They've got their own self-absorption issues going on. They don't care. Do you, do you think it was fair as an 18-year-old to be able to look at it that way? And and there was some justification given that social struggle? Or, yeah, actually there wasn't. And it's just about perspective. So when I was 18, I fit in pretty well. It wasn't as bad as when I was a kid. Okay. But I was still desperate to fit in. I mean, every teenager is desperate to fit in, I would guess. I think even the coolest kids are concerned. So I, I think that it's very, very reasonable to have this fear. And I think it takes a lot of failures to realize that the fear is not really real. Mm. It's not really connected to reality. And so I, I I think everyone has this fear. I would be. I think it's just a human thing that we really want to fit into the group. We don't want to take too much risks yeah. because, well, if we take this back to to the tribe and if we fucked up too badly, then we weren't invited to the fire and we wouldn't get piece of that mammoth that someone yeah, brought home for food. Thing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a survival thing. So I think it's deeply ingrained in us to be afraid. Yeah, mm. uh, just the fact that it's. it's so scared to just go up to a beautiful person and say hi why i mean that's they're never going to kill us but we're still terrified of doing that which makes no sense whatsoever so i think it's completely reasonable that i was scared and i think this realizations came over time and it probably wasn't as clear to me back then as it is now looking back but it's it's a very valuable re uh, lesson that i learned yeah no, I love that. And your point that it allowed you to fail proudly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Without that, it, I always feel like um, I, I wrote a piece on this um, around the idea that it's sort of like, like your eyes are like the movie camera. So you watch life from your perspective. And yeah. so it's, it's sort of, if you, if you're not mindful to that, 
it's very easy to start to see that the world is all in relation to you. So of course the world's going to react when you mess up, but actually yeah. everyone's living that way. So it's all <laughs> their own movie, you know, it's all their yeah. own TV show. And like, it, it's their perspective. It's not yours. So we do tend to think that everyone's thinking about what we're doing. And the reality is they're not. I love that analogy. I mean, you're the star in your movie and I'm just an extra. And it's the same way yeah. and the other way around. I'm the star in my movie and you're just an extra. And no stars ever really care about the extras. That's just how movie life is. Yeah. yeah so right. I completely agree. I think that's a great analogy. Cool. It's it's like the Truman Show for anyone who's seen that. It's like everyone on set is there for his life. But that's not the way life yeah. actually works. It just feels that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's Perfect. All right. So let's let's get back into your story and not and not Jim Carrey movies. Um, yeah. So you're you get you guys have this IPO. You've got more wealth than you you know would need for your life, and everything's fine, and your story's over, right? And that's why we're here today. Yeah, and then we'll live happily ever after. Right. That's it. I got the princess. I killed the dragon. <laughs> no. Okay. So get back into that. So. I'm 28, and for all of my life, I've been chasing the currency of friendship, regardless if that's hockey pictures or or money, that I've kind of saw that if I have this, that means that I'm good enough. It means that I'm going to belong. And I get this financial freedom. I made $15 million in one day. And I have this complete rush within me. It's like, wow, I don't ever need to work one single day in my life. I have total financial freedom and safety and everyone knows what's what I've done and everything will be perfect from now on and that feeling lasted for like a week and then I just realized I woke up in the morning after like a week I don't know maybe two and I I had this cold wouldn't go away and I had been fighting with my girlfriend and I realized that I'm I'm not happy I'm I'm quite miserable and I've been chasing this financial freedom and goal for my entire life with the idea of once I reach that, that's eternal happiness. And I realized that's it's not. It, it means a lot. It's very valuable, but it's not what I dreamed it up to be, mm. which just takes me to a sense of disappointment and a lack of meaning. Like it feels like things is a lie. Yeah. Like if, if, if this wasn't happiness, then what is? And so I've had this challenging relationship with my girlfriend for many years and I've just uh, engulfed myself with business and not thinking about too much about work, about her. And suddenly all of those problems come back and they are not going anywhere. So we, we can't deal with them and I don't have any excuses anymore. So we end up breaking up after seven years together. And she and worked in the business with you as well. Yeah, she worked in the business. She and was your best friend. Yeah, she was. Yeah, so it was my best. My best friend Emil, who worked in the company, got burned out as well. So he wasn't himself. Destroyed our relationship. And Johanna, my fiance, uh, she worked in the business, and yeah, it kind of tore our relationship apart because yeah. everything was business. Everything was work. That was the top priority of every day, and the purpose of waking up was making money. Yeah. And then when that didn't immediately solve everything, yeah, we we broke up. And if I wasn't lost before that happened, I was definitely lost now. 
So I didn't really know what to do. I ended up traveling a bit, trying to enjoy life a bit, but things just seemed empty. And my friend introduced me to a charity project in, in Africa that he was supporting. And they were building a school, but they had run out of money. So they needed about $15,000 to complete this school, and I decided to donate that money to them. And then six months later, we went down to visit and, and see when they actually completed this school. And I remember coming into the schoolyard, and on the right-hand side, there's three gray buildings. And they got these steel bars for the windows. They're in concrete, and it's worn and torn out, and it looks like prisons. Yeah. And on the left side, there is this splash of colors. It's a green, yellow, and red building. And just seeing the contrast there made me just happy to be here. Like, wow, there is something going on here. But it wasn't just seeing that colors that shifted things for me. It was later in that afternoon, I sat with Torsten, who's the man who founded this other part of the school and these things. And he said that, during the daytime, we are not using our school building. We have voluntary classes after uh, daytime. So the other teachers from the other school buildings can borrow this school whenever they want during daytime. And it, this had much better fans, better everything. So they got to do that and wanted to do that. And he said that it was on one condition. And it was that in this school building, you never beat the kids. And I just got stunned when he said that, because to me, it's so obvious that you don't hit kids. And I saw this seven-year-olds running around and the realization of that in these gray prison-like buildings, kids got beaten. The kids, I mean, imagine, imagine the feeling of going to school knowing that you're going to get beaten up. Yeah. By the teachers. I, yeah, by the teachers. And then I felt like, wow, in this splash of colors, the kids are safe. The kids want to be here and they're making a difference. And that became a very powerful experience for me. I felt like something just clicked, like, okay, this is what meaning is. This is what I should do. This makes far more sense than all that money or whatever it's I've been working towards before. All the sacrifices I've done just to make money. Yeah. And I started devoting my life to to charity in various ways. I got involved with tons of different projects and I got involved with trafficking and trying to cure malaria and trying to start an orphanage. I did all kinds of things that it was really, really hard. And I realized I knew nothing about how to do this. Mm. Uh, so and then I asked myself, what am I good at? And I realized I'm I'm good at building businesses. I'm good at making money. I've done that since the schoolyard. How can I do that to still make a meaningful difference? Yeah. And decided to start a company with the purpose of just making money. But instead of making them for me, we're going to give all of it away. And yeah, that's what we're doing now. That's great.com, as it's called, the project that we're we're running now, which is going to be a ultra-capitalistic company in the sense that we, we want to make as much money as possible. But the intention is to give everything away and just making as much difference as possible. 
So it, it's an interesting twist. It's not a charitable organization. It's not a foundation. It's not a B Corp that we have in the U.S. It's a, a purely capitalistic corporation, profit-driven, but it's what you do with those profits that you're, you're using those to affect change and for good. Exactly. And that's what I know how to do. I try to build charity organizations, but I, I don't know how to do that. I know how to do this. Well, so this gets into the whole discussion we had when we caught up the other day about what great.com will be doing as that business versus where the money goes. So give us a little bit more insight about what the, the capitalistic enterprise is. Yeah. So I've been in the gambling industry since I was 16, 17. And I started out with bingo and I made pretty much all of my money in casino. So I come from a as far away from a philanthropic industry as possible, more or less. Yeah. And my intention is to do that all over again and build a marketing company for a casino that gives away all the profit. So great.com is effectively, at least from the beginning, going to be a company focused on marketing casino on a commission basis, but we'll give away all of the money. So that's, I mean, that, that's the thing that strikes me is, you know, I think when people think of casino activities, they think, you know, kind of the opposite of philanthropy, as you're saying, it's like that alcohol, guns, uh, you know, cigarettes and tobacco products kind of all go hand in hand. It's the last thing they think of when they think of giving back and, and charity. Um, and so that, that was my challenge to you is the, the disconnect between those two. And your answer really struck me is, and I, so I actually shared it with a couple other people the past few days and they were like, you know, they got it because like you're trying to have an impact and you're recognizing how do I have the biggest impact possible? Um, yeah. So yeah. talk about that a bit. Yeah. So in, in short, if, if I could go back in time and kick 16 year old Eric in the butt and say, Hey, go into some other industry than gambling. I probably would, uh, but I can't do that. So I've spent the last 15 years of my life becoming really good at the gambling industry. And I dare to say that when it comes to marketing and gambling, I'm one of the best in the world doing this. So for me, it feels like the most, the most moral thing I can do is to use that skill set to make a positive impact and do something good. And if I were to start some other company, if I were going to start over and try to do completely different business, the chances of me failing is probably 90% because that's what it is with startups. Mm -hmm. So I would be very irresponsible for trying to create a charity project with 90% fail rate when I think that I can do a charity project with 99% success rate doing this. So I would give away a lot of opportunity. I would waste a lot of opportunities by doing so. Mm. And to me, it's that would be more immoral to waste that opportunity than it is to actually capitalize on it, even though it means that I'm going to effectively destroy lives doing this. I'm going to make, yeah, I'm going to make a big damage in various ways doing this. At the same time, I think that I can do so, so much more good doing this than I could if I tried anything else. Mm. So it will be a, the net result will be much bigger doing this. 
Do you, I, I think that's really well put. Do you do you ever have moments where you struggle with that? Or feel like you're justifying so, it to yourself? I mean, a big part of me doesn't see the problem. So it's it's easy to be ignorant when I don't see the suffering. Yeah. It's same way it's easy to ignore global warming when you're not actually seeing the polar bear who the polar bear who can't go up on the ice. Yeah. So I'm definitely hiding behind not actually seeing the damage that I'm doing. And if I'm sitting down and really looking into myself, imagining someone who just gambled away their money and they can't pay for their kids' football classes or whatever because of that. Yeah, yeah, I'm suffering in that and it makes me question it. And if I'm stepping out of that and looking at it objectively from the outside, it's like, yeah, but I still want to make a big dent in the universe in a positive way. And I need to suffer from the kids who can't take football classes then. I, I, I cannot do maximum uh, positive impact and limit uh, all the damages. That's not, I'm, I'm not in that position. Yeah. I'm in a position where I can maximum output by dealing some damage. And it's, it's a philosophical approach and say, is that okay or not? Yeah. And to me, it is okay. But that I can totally understand people who think that it's crazy and that it's immoral and that I'm just stupid that's, that is doing this. I totally understand that perspective. I think they're both, uh, not overly simplifying it, but in a sense, because it, it isn't cut and dry. This is super philosophical. I don't think there is a right and wrong here. It's very easy to argue the right and wrong of either position. But I, I, I just, you know, it's like you said with Ro it, it's almost like being Robin Hood. Um, you know, is that right or is that wrong? There's, there's right and wrong about it. If there's a hundred kids who get educated, you know, using the, the charity example from that school, a hundred kids who are educated and not beaten in the process. And there's a family where, you know, the father has gambled away the money and, and those kids are starving, lose their house, you know, whatever pain they go through. Well, clearly that's terrible. And clearly what's going on in that school is fantastic. So how do you, how do you, you know, how do you meet those two out? Like is a hundred kids versus two kids? Is that the math? Um, I don't yeah. think it's that clear cut, but it, it's a really interesting dilemma. And I give you credit for, you didn't shy away from it. You know, when I, I was a little bit nervous challenging you when we talked the other day, cause I didn't know how you'd take it. And you were very upfront about it. And it wasn't like you had this kind of party line blow off response. Um, but you also weren't like, Oh my God, I never thought of it this way. What am I going to do? Like, you've clearly pondered this. You've clearly faced it, which I, I give you a lot of credit for. Thank you. Yeah, I've given a lot of thought. And I mean, to be honest, I would love to be a hero. I think everyone would love to be a hero. And it would be so much easier for me to be a hero writing this story and taking the word casino out of it. Yeah. Everything would be so much easier. It would be so much easier for me to be on big podcasts talking about it, probably. Yeah. Like, yeah, he's a hero. He's giving away all this money, doing all these things. But now I'm a villain. Many people look at me as a villain for trying to do casino. They don't even care about the purpose of it because they yeah. just see casino. And no one wants to be a villain. But so it would be just so much easier for me to not believe in this. Yeah. But I do believe in it, and I want to walk the path of my belief. 
Yeah. Uh, there's a piece of me that feels like, you know, in the justifying it bucket, it's like, well, you're not, you didn't invent something new to ruin lives. I don't know if this is valid or not, but it's like if you invented cocaine or you invented meth or, you, you know, something like that, that's like clearly terrible and you've you've now added to the pool of things that can harm pre- people versus you're doing something that it's been around literally for thousands of years. The people who are gambling on your site versus another, they would be doing that regardless. It's not like you just suddenly drew someone in and cre- and gave them a gambling problem. Maybe maybe some where they didn't have the access before, they weren't aware of it. But on the whole, like you didn't just invent online gambling. You know, it. I don't no. know if that if that makes it more right or less right or, or what. But to me, it's almost like it's not as bad as if you had created something new that was you know had a potential negative impact. No, I agree to that. Uh, it's all, I mean, look, it's, it's an incredibly interesting and I think really difficult philosophical exercise. But at the end of the day, I do, I do see the reason why you're doing it. And that recognition that, you know, look, I, it, it, it's like the leader of a, like an army platoon or something. It's like, look, these two guys, I know I'm sending them to their death, but it's to save the entire company or it's to save this village. Or, you know, you can't, you can't just have pure good out there all the time. I mean, going back to the our life is a movie. Like you don't just have the superhero who saves the day. You can't save the day if there wasn't a day to be saved. Like people are suffering and that's why you needed the hero. It's not because everything's perfect all the time. Yeah, indeed. I completely agree with you. Oh, super interesting. Um, There's so much more to your story. You know, we are catching up over email a bit too. And, and what we would hit on, there's so many more nuances to it. Your relationship there's much more to that. You did mention that Johanna's your fiance now, so you guys get back together. What's yeah. the, what's the journey to make that happen? Because everything fell apart, and I mean, I would imagine an incredibly painful way for both of you. So, how do you come back together from that? Okay, so we could go on a really long tangent there, but I'm going to keep it short because it's just easier that way. Okay. Well. Um, so basically, the reason why we broke up was that we have very different uh, sex drives. I'm an extremely sexual person, and I would say that I definitely have, an, have had an addictive behavior towards sex during my entire life. And I think this goes back to childhood me not being able to interact with boys, but I somehow managed to get my love and value from women, even as a little boy. My earliest memories includes girls somehow. And I think that for a very long time, I put so much pressure on her. I created so much negative associations to sex with her that I kind of took her sex drive away from her. So it was good when we met, but I was just a very needy person with an extremely high sex drive and was there poking her at every single minute. And that over time became a very, very big problem. So for years and years, this became worse and worse. And we spent, we ended up spending uh, some time apart. We split up uh, because of this and we got back together. Before you really broke up. 
Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Like well, we, no, actually, no, we, we broke up after that. No, this was after the IPO. Oh, okay. So this is now uh, 2000. Yeah, just after the IPO. I'm 28 years old, 29, something like within a year after the IPO, something like that. And we didn't have any way of solving this. And we have so many differences within this. And for I felt... I felt extremely lonely in this because who do you talk to about not making your sex life work? I mean, especially being insecure from the beginning, wanting to be this alpha man person, being super successful in business, which kind of, for me at least, created an identity of that I was super successful in everything else, which just made it even more embarrassing to not having a functional sex life. And how do you solve it? It's like this huge, huge challenge. But we spent four months separately and I just missed her like crazy and felt like we have to figure this this out. And I went off, I went to the US for a couple of months trying to just find myself, trying to enjoy life and I just didn't work. So... I can't we, see doing I that can in the buy US. Back home. <laughs> no one ever says um, come no one ever says come to the US to find yourself. <laughs> it's like no, I, I hear people like go to like Sri Lanka or like you know the South Pacific. Yeah, I, I, I went to I went to Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, that's the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it didn't work. <laughs> so okay. all respect yeah, so to I went Los to Los Angeles. Angeles yeah, all in respect to Los Angeles. It's it's not a good place for a broken heart. It's it's not. But re- either way, uh, so we I came back home. We decided to give things another try, and I mean it did not work uh, early on either. But I was like, I was we were really dedicated to solving this, mm-hmm. but it's still. No one talks about this in a way where it's at least not in a way that it speaks to a 29 year old young man who sees sex as this biological urge and who feels super entitled to sex. And yeah, I I did so many wrong things in so many ways. And we... I ended up meeting this 53-year-old mentor, kind of. I just stumbled into this guy on a public speaking course. And he said, hey, you and I should go have lunch. And I was like, okay, let's have lunch. And I didn't know him. And he started telling his life story for me over lunch without me asking any questions. And it was basically a reflection of mine where he had been a very successful business person. He ended up, he he got married. He couldn't get their sex life to work for like 10 years. They ended up breaking up. They got back together. And seven years later, everything is, they've been working so much with this and they got into a point where everything really works. And he shared the story with me without me asking anything. And it felt like I was listening to myself 20 years into the future. Oh, wow. And I was stunned it's like why are you telling me this and he said like i just had this feeling that you needed to hear it wow and i was like who who starts this conversation who says this who does this yeah 
And so that became a very, I, I don't think that me and Johanna would be engaged now if it wasn't for that meeting. Yeah. I think he, he changed everything for for me. It changed my perspective and everything. And up until then, I had always thought of myself as some kind of stud. Obviously, I'm really fucking good in bed like everyone else. Uh, no, not like everyone. Better than everyone else. Like this young, like successful guy. Are, yeah, yeah, like everyone thinks. Yeah. That's probably a better way to put it. So I thought of myself as this uh, alpha male uh, sex god. And I realized after starting talking to him and he started sharing about his perspectives and what he had done wrong during their relationship. And it just was so many eye-opening moments when I realized like, whoa, Mm. I've been doing so many things wrong. I've been acting like a needy child i've been ruining her independence i've been controlling her i've been bullying her and he got me reading all of these books and we had a lot of conversations about it and one thing that i came a really big insight comes from a book called come as you are by a woman named emily nagoski she's got a great ted talk as well so if you want to see it google come as you are ted talk it's probably there And she talks about the gas and the brake. And this was a concept in sex I've never even thought about before. It basically means that my interpretation of it at least is that everything that we do in life is either a reason to to, uh, have sex or a reason to flee and survive. Like the two main components of life is create more life or protect your own life. It's basically what life is about. So either it's a situation that says it's on the gas pedal, have sex, uh, or it's on the brake pedal, aim to survive. And what society actually does a lot is that we create a lot of reasons to stump on the brake. We create a lot of constant fear in terms of stress, either related to business or whatever, or uh, fear of not looking good enough. Maybe you're you're just not confident. So that's something that stomps on the brake. Yeah. You are worried that your partner isn't happy, which was the case always for me, which is a big, big fear thing. So it's like you're putting big, big rocks on the brake. And if you do that in a car, it doesn't matter how many things you put on the gas pedal, you're not going to move anywhere. So I started realizing that, okay, everything that I've tried to do to fix our sex life is about creating reasons to have sex, like going on a romantic vacation together, uh, buying her sexy lingerie, doing whatever that might be and create reasons. I'm trying to put things on the gas pedal, but never once looked at what could be on the brake. And every time I did something to put on the gas, I added more pressure to her because she knew why I was booking that hotel week and she knew that I was expecting something. Ah. So every time I actually put something on the gas, I put another probably bigger rock on the brake. Yeah. And I've never thought of it this way before. So that realization made me think, okay, how can I how can I create a safe space for for us where there isn't a lot of things on the brake? How can I create a situation where the, she doesn't feel pressured by me, where she doesn't feel that she is stressed from work or whatever it is, where she doesn't feel that um, she has to do something. And how can I do this? And 
so many things have been going on where we have managed to take things off the break. Yeah. And so many conversations that has been very meaningful in that, that just that shift that me going from how can I press the gas pedal to how can I remove everything from the break has been a very, very big shift in this. And it's been very long struggle and it's definitely not the only thing that made a difference. Yeah. But yeah, now, uh, two years later, things are actually better than ever. I've spoken about this with lots of friends in various ways, and it seems like pretty much everyone is suffering one way or another from challenges with sex. Yeah, and still not talking about no it. No one is talking about it. Yeah. No one is talking about it. Well, and so it's so interesting. So that guy, you know, just speaking up, reaching out to you on it and seeing that in you how much that did for you and recognizing you you're doing the same by being open about it for all the people who yeah. speak about it. But clearly I, I think you're right that a lot of people to different degrees and, and maybe in different ways are in that same position. Um, there's, there's one thing I'm so curious about is when you've spent years reinforcing, you know, when I put something on the, you know, you like put something out there to be nice. It's really, secretly meaning this other thing and and she's reading that and so it's it's you know bigger rock on the brake than the gas and then yeah. you're trying to behave differently there's this tendency or the, this common issue where the person on the receiving end is still expecting that even if you say that's not what you mean you do still mean that or maybe you're not yeah. even in touch with it so it's i, I think for those people who are like well i'm going to try it today that's great. Try it, but don't expect them to suddenly see you differently. Like you, you no, do. No, it, no. it takes, like you said, it's been two years. Like it takes, it takes work. It takes consistency. It takes openness. And don't get frustrated or mad at them if they don't see immediately see you in a different light. No, and it's. I mean, to even get to a place where that intention is pure, I'm not mm. there. If I'm booking a hotel weekend now, I still have those expectations. Not in the same way, but. I, I'm not pure, quote unquote, pure, whatever that means in my intention now either. Yeah. And that's just not going to get away. But it's a big, big difference in how the focus is. And I think a key component is this has been another amazing book that probably made a bigger impact in my life than anything else. And it's called Nonviolent Communication by an author named Marshall Rosenberg. And he also holds a, a three-hour great workshop on, on YouTube where he talks about these things. Uh, if you Google for nonviolent communication, it's up there in the top. And basically, this is a communication method that has changed everything for me and Johanna and changed more than any sex tip or anything could either be. And it's to a large extent based on, on honesty but reaching to a point where you can speak honestly. So if I'm booking that hotel weekend, but I'm not even stating my agenda, I'm not saying anything, or we're just going there and it's kind of unspoken that I am expecting sex, we don't have it. She's, it's all of these yeah. silent games going on. Yeah. But what this book is talking about is how do you actually communicate your emotions, your behaviors and your needs and do that in a way that makes people see them and understand them. So it's, it's just tricky to explain these concepts, but I'll give it a try. 
So if if we're going on this hotel weekend and I'm saying nothing, yeah. then that's going to be a tricky game in other way. But if I'm just stating to her that, okay, I have booked this hotel weekend right now and part of me is doing this out of just pure love and wanting to spend time on me. And at the same time, I feel that I have an intention in my heart that I just want to have sex. I think that we haven't had that enough. And I feel that I have a need for that connection and that intimacy. And I just want you to know that. Yeah. Suddenly there are no hidden games. Yeah. She can respond to that. We can talk about it. We can connect over it. And it's a very scary place to start that conversation. But this book is all about how to be able to do that. And we've now reached a point where we have spoken about everything, more or less. There are next to zero secrets in our relationship. And that in itself has made a bigger impact than any gas or break can ever do. Because there is so many hidden things lying on that break that just comes up through conversations. Yeah. Um. I'm going to link to both of these books, but I want to get this nonviolent communication. Um, that sounds brilliant. I mean, I think that's so the key is to actually talk about what we're thinking and feeling. Um, when you talked about these, like these hidden agendas, these hidden thoughts, it's like everyone knows they're there, but because we don't acknowledge it, it just creates this tension that is yeah. completely standing in the way. Yeah, I think... So I think you can take an, an analogy of if you're if you're in a dark forest and there might be a bear in that forest is going to eat you. You're going to be scared of every little shadow that you see because that could be a danger. Yeah. But if you're instead in a forest in the middle of the day, everything is clear. You can see everything. There is still a bear somewhere and you might see it far away. You're not going to be scared for any shadows or anything because you know that's over there you can see it and i think that's how it works with with honesty in a relationship that you will always know there is a danger because in every relationship there's going to be a danger somewhere there is that bear yeah. wandering around but if i'm telling her okay this is my intention this is the danger this is the bear i'm actually not happy but at least when I say something else, she knows that there's not going to be a hidden agenda there because I've already said the painful things. I've already shown her where the bear is. So she's not going to look for the bear everywhere else. Yeah. And I think that's been a huge difference for us where she can now feel, well, we can both feel safe because we know that we're actually saying when there is a bear. Yeah. And for the first seven years of our relationship, we didn't. Yeah. So every shadow became scary. Oh, that's, that's brilliantly put. I, I'm really curious, is she, does she work on great.com with you? Uh, no, she doesn't. Okay. Uh, that's that's probably part she's... of making things better. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually don't think it was that much of a problem us working together because we weren't, it was a problem very early on yeah. when the company was small, but it wasn't much of a problem later because the company was so big that we didn't have any daily contact. I wasn't her boss. I didn't set her salary. Uh, it was actually just a benefit because she understood the pressure I was in and she understood all these things. Yeah. So I think working together was actually a good thing for our relationship because we could understand each other better. Um, but now she simply doesn't want to. So yeah. it's, it's more about that than anything else. Well, there's a, there's a different reason why I definitely get the, um, 
she understands things and, and you can connect that much faster. Uh, my wife and I had that when we first met. She worked at the business school I was going to. So she knew all the people I was interacting with. She knew the professors. Like, you know, when I talked about my day or she talked about hers, it just took out a lot of need to explain who's who and their personalities and what's going on and how it all interrelates. It definitely helped. But the the reason why I'm wondering about the working together bit is what it doesn't do is create a separation in your lives where you can have something that were like when you talked about work just sort of consuming everything when your personal life is intertwined with your work life it reinforces work's ability to do that versus allowing you to step aside because you're both immersed in it yeah yeah i can see that and the worst part was when i was her boss yeah so she was working as an office manager being in charge of everything and we were growing very quickly and when I came home from work and I was completely exhausted, she still had a lot of questions and a lot of decisions that she wanted her boss to deal with, which was me, which was just a person who wanted to go to bed and sleep and not being bothered with what kind of carpet should we have. I like, I don't give a flying fuck. Get whatever carpet you want. Yeah. 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 Uh, so yeah, then it was a struggle. Yeah. Yeah. It's the lack of separation. It's like people say you shouldn't, uh, I have a friend who lived in the same building as his office. There was like uh, condos and apartments above where the office section was. And everyone's like, you're crazy because he just takes the elevator to work. You know, there's no, he doesn't even like walk across the courtyard or anything. Anyway, um, all right, this this is a really interesting journey. And there's so many points of just real philosophy and sort of self challenge in it that, um, it, it is really interesting how you face those and reflected on them. I, I think there are a number of things that you've hit on that we all deal with to different degrees in different ways. Maybe we need to pause and reflect on our lives to see those connections. But like, you know, this, this relationship situation, whether it's a sex addiction or anything else, we do all have these dynamics that you guys faced and the reasons why things are better today and the things you're using to work on keeping them better and, and making them even better. That's something I I cannot think of people who can just say, oh, no, I don't need that. I'm good. Like We, we all need that. You know, <laughs> we all universal. need it. Yeah, it's very universal. Yeah, we're all struggling with that. And we're all struggling with honesty, I would say that. Yeah. To, to grit, get to, And this is something that we really want to do in great. So we're practicing a lot of like extreme transparency things. For example, you can if you just Google great.com salaries. You find all of our salaries. And it's the same logic there that... If we tell everything to everyone, there isn't room for for that bear to be hiding anywhere. Yeah. So now people know who have a higher salary than someone else. So they know that's a concern. They can also ask me, why is that bear so big over there? And I can explain. But if I, they wouldn't see it, they wouldn't know it, then once again, all shadows could be like, okay, this unfair because of this or that, or is this, this and this. And I was like, no, he's got this salary because of these reasons. Yeah. Now, you know, feel free to ask me. So it's, I believe that that goes for everything in life, that it's, it's really painful to have honest and vulnerable conversation. It's really, really hard. To me, nonviolent communication, that book has been like a guidebook of how to do that in a way so it's less painful yeah. and much more loving. It's by far the most meaningful book that I've read in my life, by far. I, if I could trade that book for all other books that I've read, I would have done that. It's been so important for me. And it, 
it applies to relationships, it applies to business, it applies to everything. And yeah, I just think if we're just more honest, more transparent, then we're in a much better place. And we're honest with our pain and our misery and our fears and guilts and whatever, then they're suddenly not so so dangerous or yeah. harmful anymore. Yeah. Well, I have I have a book I would have put in that category. So now I'm excited to have a challenger to it. And if Ooh. I have if I have a tie or I have a new winner, that's okay because that means I've got two pretty amazing books that I can give a lot of credit to. Um, that's great. All right, I'm I'm literally ordering that as soon you as you need we're to off. say the book. It's you can't build oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called Open Heart, Clear Mind by a Buddhist monk named Tudtin Chodron. Okay, Open Heart, Clear Mind. Yeah, and uh, I've it it inspired such a change in me that. I suddenly shifted course on my plans for a second book, a follow-up to do a day and wrote something completely different. Um, wow. Just, that's big. It just, I mean, it changed too much of my life. It changed a number of uh, people I was coaching and working with things they were struggling with. It gave me such clarity to help them through that. And I started to figure out a, a whole new approach to relationships. Um, so I'm excited for this one. I, I have no problem with competition. If I end up with something <laughs> even better, looking forward to hear yeah. your review. I mean, what's wrong with having something even better than the most influential book you've ever read for your life? Like, so I get one that's even more influential. Fantastic. So that's the <laughs> yeah. Marshall Rosenberg you said. Yeah, yeah, Marshall Rosenberg. All right, I will link. I'll link to that. I'll link to Come as You Are and um, Emily Nagoski's TEDx, so we can we can pop that into. Yeah, so we can find that easy. Um, there's other stuff I wanted to ask you, but. We already said this in an email. There's a second interview, like there has to be at some point. Um, so maybe, maybe when grade is further along and there's more, uh, more of a story of, of where that's gotten to and some other things, but I'll, I'll see this one. I'm so curious with people who have any type of addiction in their lives or, you know, that sort of addictive drive towards something and they have hyper success in other areas. If you think you could pick those apart, like in the uh, we, we talked about rich role offline, like if you look at Rich's success in ultra endurance sports and he's a former addict, you see a lot of former addicts who are ultra endurance runners. Um, I don't think that's a coincidence, but I don't know. I think maybe it takes a bit of an addictive personality and it's a question of how you how you guide that. But I, I want to talk to you about that when we have more time to do it. So maybe think about happy that. to explore it. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting interesting idea um it's not to say everyone should go out and train to be an addict of some kind and use it to your advantage but if you have those tendencies can you channel it differently um eric what where can people find out more about what you're doing about great.com and how can they be a part of you know the 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 charity mission if, if, if they're not a um you know an online gambler how can they support the kinds of things that you're trying to affect change in so the best way to stay up to date with we have our own podcast becoming great and it's a podcast for people who wants to make the world a better place through entrepreneurship so we're sharing a lot about the journey and things we're doing but it's also a lot of like business tips personal development tips and stuff like that that we're very passionate about because we believe if we can give away uh, good things in various ways to people who wants to make a world a better place. That's just scaling. So yeah. following our podcast is, is one great place to do it. And I'm also very active now on, on Instagram, um, at Eric Bergman. So I guess Eric with a K. Yeah. 
Yes. Uh, so there is a lot of things going on going on there. There isn't really an easy way to be super engaged in the things we're doing right now, but I'm hoping that we'll structure it somewhere that will be easier to help. Um, so right now, just talking about us, reaching out to what we're doing, share our mission in various ways, and that's just amazing. Yeah. No, that's great. And we, I don't think we talked thematically about what it is you're trying to support through the work at great.com. So like in terms of the theme, the charitable yeah. theme. So where we are right now is that we all our donations goes towards um, climate change because we believe that that's actually something that could destroy the planet, which is far more important, unfortunately, than a school in Africa, for example. And we're working no schools in Africa if there's no planet. Exactly. And we're mainly supporting an organization called Rainforest Coalition. Yeah. Which it's such an amazing organization. So what what, when other organizations work towards the uh, environment, for example, a very common thing is to plant new trees. And that's obviously great. Plant trees, that's really, really good. But what the Rainford Coalition does is that they're getting politicians to change laws and to create big reserves and do these things as a grand scale. I mean, instead of planting a thousand trees, they might be protecting a billion trees by creating a new natural reserve. And they're also working with changing laws in terms of instead of having the farmer who their best way of making money is to burn down the forest to plant their seeds, they're actually changing laws to make it more beneficial for that person to go and work in tourism or whatever by creating those kind of incentives. So they're doing this on a political large scales, and there's actually some precedents involved with this from different rainforest organizations. So you can actually, there are a lot of calculations on this, and you could actually offset your entire uh, carbon footprint for one year for about $15. Yeah. So you could offset your entire family easily because they're so efficient or your entire life wouldn't even cost that much. So they're just so much more efficient than anything else, at least that I've seen. And I've done a lot of research on this topic. So it's, that's where we have all our focus right now and see making sure that we can make a difference there. When you, when you told me about that the other day, $15 per person, roughly, um, I was literally shocked. Like that's, so inconsequential it's just over a dollar a month i think pretty much everybody listening can find that money so i i immediately went um and i i'm a family of three so i put in 45 dollars a year and so my family is is being responsible in that small way and there's more we can do but that's such a no-brainer start um, yeah so it's I, so I so that, simple uh, Really simple. Yeah, people really no talk about to. giving. No, no, I mean, it's if you're going to compare donating $15 to offset your entire footprint or stop eating meat or stop flying, it's so, so much easier to donate 15 bucks. Sure, you can do both. But if you're only going to choose one, you're getting such a far away with just that small financial donation. Yeah. But people don't know about it. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. not at all. So um, I'm on the bandwagon. I will link to them as well. Um, I'm going to link directly yeah. to their donation on that, page. On that note as well. Yeah, go to the donation. Don't try to read and understand because you need a PhD to understand them, unfortunately. Yeah. So go there. And if you trust me, donate. <laughs> if you don't, 
try to understand, but it's a challenging read. That's that's yeah. for sure. No, and they're well verified. So this is, you know, people can see that they have the, you know, the, the credentials and the reviews that have been done of them. Um, Cause that's yeah. always a question with any charity. Um, fantastic. I, I'll put all of those links, links to the books, links to great.com. Um, I'm not going to link to the salaries because people can Google that themselves, but I appreciate the yeah. honesty and transparency and we'll have you back on and we can get into to even more of this. I think it's a really interesting uh, philosophical exercise to to use your life as as a case study, if you don't mind. <laughs> it's awesome. I'm happy to be a yeah. case study. Eric, thank you so much for, uh, <laughs> well, for reaching out to me in the first place, because this wouldn't have happened if you weren't curious and interested. And um, And I really appreciated getting into this with you. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Brian. I'm looking forward to be back. Now, the most important thing we can do is both try to remember how to close the podcast out. Do you remember remember what to say? (laughs) I remember. I remember. All right. Today is a new day. Go out and do it. Excellent. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. Really interesting guy and really interesting story, right? That paradox just blows me away. I I could talk about that for hours. And, you know, again, like I said in the intro, I have to give Eric a lot of credit for not shying away from it and not excusing it away. Like he recognizes what it is. He doesn't try to argue that, you know, there are people whose lives will be ruined. Like he doesn't even just say like there are people who there are people who may be hurt or uh, a little bit worse off or anything. Like he says it plainly. Lives will be ruined. And yet he's not scared of that and he's not backing away. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it wrong. But he's very honest and open and facing it. And at the same time, recognizing this situation where he's really good at creating those businesses, generating profits. And if he wants to have as much impact on the charitable side as possible, he needs to do what he's best at. How do you face that? Do you have a conundrum or a paradox in your life where there's something you're really good at and it can enable a lot of good and a lot of things that you wish for, but there's a cost to doing it? And maybe it's your career. Maybe it's not your career. Maybe it's how you are with other people. Maybe it's how you are in your relationships at home, in your family, with friends. Uh, it's a it's a really interesting point to reflect on. And I will add to that, you know, we talk about this book, Nonviolent Communication, which as this episode comes out, I have just finished. It is amazing. Now I won't I won't uh, surrender the title of most beautiful thing I've ever read from Open Heart, Clear Mind by Tubten Chodron, but this is really close and I get why it is for Eric. So I strongly recommend you pick up the book and give it a read. It's, it's not hard. It's not terribly long. It's really clear. It's really beautiful and it makes a lot of sense. And I have found myself trying to bring it into my personal relationships and my work more and more. You know, this is a very timely time, if that's not a weird phrase, timely time, um, with my new book coming out, The 50-75-100 Solution. You know, it wasn't out when Eric and I recorded this episode, but as I released the episode, it is out. And it's all about making relationships work better. And as I read Nonviolent Communication, there's so many things that spoke to me and the message I'm trying to give in The 50-75-100 Solution around how we view other people and trying to appeal to their happiness and the way that it's brought or the way that it's talked about in nonviolent communication or NVC as it's referenced to in the book um, is 
appealing to people's needs. So there are feelings, their behaviors, and the needs driving those things. And if you can appeal to their needs, you can get a different response in them. I think these two ideas really are in sync. Happiness seeking needs. Needs are just specific forms of happiness that we seek. So it, it resonated for me. Um, check out that book, Nonviolent Communication. I will put a link to it in the show notes. And of course, check out the 5075-100 solution. If one resonates for you, I promise you the other one will as well. And of course, check out great.com. I still can't believe Eric got that domain name. How amazing is that? How great is that? Um, and you know, follow Eric, follow me, subscribe to the show. If you haven't already, you can follow me at Brian Falchuk across all social media. And of course, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it's called now, and Spotify and Stitcher and um, Pandora. Basically, anywhere you find podcasts, you should be able to find the show and check it out on an ongoing basis. I would love to have you back here every week. All right. Thank you so much. And remember, today is a new day. Go out and do it. Thanks, everyone.